All right. How's it going, my fellow history scholars? Welcome back to the podcast where we talk about the unanswered questions of history and unravel the mystery of the many questions we ask about our past. All right. Today, I'm your host and uh, welcome back, Ian, as well. Ian, you want to say hi? Hello, everybody. And then uh, we... And then we have a special guest star here as well, Captain Dan Johnson. Hello, everybody. He is the director of the museum for uh, Jim E. Lockwood and the Heritage with his name, and then as well as being the owner of Love's Park Scuba. And uh, am I missing anything else? Owner of Lockwood Scuba Equipment. And owner of Lockwood Scuba Equipment. So, uh, quite a well-established man here. And uh, we're going to interview him, ask him about uh, Jim E. Lockwood and some of the stuff that uh, Jim E. Lockwood did in our series on the pioneers of scuba diving. And then uh, we'll talk about some of the stuff that uh, Captain Dan did as well. All right. But before we get into all that, I'd like to remind you guys today that uh, uh, you can check out our Facebook page and our Twitter pages for more information on the episodes, as well as to ask questions and to stay up to date on information concerning the podcast. We also have a community page for more information and to interact with the podcast. And we're also in the development of a Patreon-only Discord server for more direct interaction with the podcast. Uh, Don't forget that you can support us by donating on our Anchor website, as well as our Patreon page, which gives you exclusive access to bonus content and early editions of episodes for as little as $3 a month. You can also support us by joining the community page on Facebook and sharing any historical information you come across. And then in the end, we'll give some shout outs to those of you guys who have been liked and been following our social media platforms. And we thank you for the growth that we've been experiencing with that. Don't forget to like, follow, comment, and even write a review on any of our platforms as we greatly appreciate it. All right. Again, today we're going to be interviewing Captain Dan Johnson about Jim E. Lockwood and uh, some of the stuff that Captain Dan Johnson has done as well. So, uh, Ian, if you don't have anything to say, we'll get right into it. All right. Do you have any comments before we start? Well, it's going to be an interesting episode today because uh, James Lockwood never got the claim to fame of being the first scuba diver in the world. Uh, Jacques Cousteau got that, and James Lockwood beat him by five years, actually, right here in Rockford, Illinois. All right. Yep. And we will get right into that right now. So uh, being the owner of a scuba shop and uh, the owner of a museum and uh, going on all of these different uh, trips and expeditions that I've heard, uh, even on some of the stuff that you've done by yourself, finding uh, the Kelly, right? Yeah, I found the Cape Kelly back in uh, 1979. And the Cape Kelly sank in 1895, May 13th, 1895, went down with the captain and the crew off of Wind Point, Wisconsin and Racine. The lumberman... I found that one. It sank in 1893, um, April 6, 1893, and it uh, sank off Oak Creek Power Plant just north of Wind Point in Racine, Wisconsin. Wow, that's really quite amazing. And uh, I, I actually ran across a news article about it the other day and uh, your discovery of the Kelly. And uh, you want to have any extra about the Kelly? Yeah, the Cape Kelly was a significant uh, wreck site, uh, a mile and three quarters due east of Windpoint Lighthouse. The uh, lighthouse keeper actually saw it sink with all hands on board, uh, but he could do nothing. It was in a blinding snowstorm, and it sank. Uh, and an early diver went out to see if they could find some 
remains of the bodies uh, back in June of 1895. Wow, that's that's crazy. And uh, the story was brought to life after uh, you discovered the shipwreck. So what kind of publicity did you get after you had found it? Well, we uh, started at the museum and put a lot of the artifacts in there. Uh, the publicity, it was written up in the uh, newspapers in both Milwaukee as well as Racine and the Rockford paper. It was also in Skin Diver magazine in uh, October of 1982's issue. Wow. That's awesome. And uh, you said you have some of the artifacts in the museum here? Yes, we do. We have the, the uh, ship's wheel. Uh, we have some of the personal effects from the uh, crew. Uh, we have the ship's anchor out front. And, and a lot of people use that ship's anchor for doing the uh, 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 boy, I, I can't remember what it was. They, they do the, uh, the thing where they drive around town and see different uh, historical sites. Um, oh, wow. So it's a, it's a refill station for Pokemon. Wow. Oh, I, okay. <laughs> for the the Pokemon Go, all that. Yeah, they yeah. they stop here for ten minutes and they look at the anchor and so forth and recharge their their cells for Pokemon. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's pretty amusing. Uh, any yeah, geocaches? <laughs> no geocaches. <laughs> uh, what were you gonna say? Ian? I said you get a lot of customers that way. Uh, unfortunately, the Pokemon people are Pokemon people, and they're not scuba divers. Yeah, there's there's a difference there, that's for sure. <laughs> All right, and uh, so what's the museum like when uh, when it's in full functioning? Because obviously, with everything that's been going on, uh, I'm sure business has been a little bit different. Yeah, we have tours here um, in the uh, history of diving. Uh, we have hard hats. We have uh, some of the posters of the old hard hat companies. And uh, we have uh, the memorabilia from the uh, diving in the 50s and in the 60s uh, and the 70s. And we also have uh, one of the oldest hard hat divers um, in the Chicagoland area that was working in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. Uh, doing commercial salvage work out of the Chicago land area. Uh, his name was Gene Turner, and uh, Gene Turner's still alive. He was trained during World War II to invade the mainland of Japan with the Lockwood Rebreathers. Wow. So uh, despite recreational and scientific use, they were using it for uh, military stuff as well? Absolutely. It was a secret. Uh, there was no bubbles. And being no bubbles, it was stealth, and he couldn't tell it if there was somebody underwater or not. Right. And you said that was uh, one of the early editions of the rebreather? Yes, it is. Uh, and that was December 9th, 1938. He demonstrated it here in Rockford, Illinois, at the Boys Club. And it made the front page of the newspaper in uh, December of 1938. So it's five years before Cousteau. Wow. Yeah. And uh, we can get into that now or uh, we can get into it later. But you have the, the newspaper article here, right? Yes, I do. I have a copy of the newspaper article from the Rockford Register Republic in uh, Rockford, Illinois. That's amazing. That's uh, really interesting, the historical discrepancies. Uh, a lot of that fame, like you were saying, was given to Cousteau and Amelia Gagnon. But uh, really, this is uh, quite, a, quite a bit earlier. Yeah, Lockwood was sworn to secrecy. He couldn't say anything because uh, his units were stealth 
and it was military secrets when he sold his design to the military. So he wasn't able to uh, uh, gather that claim to fame. Didn't get much publicity. Yeah, it, unfortunately. Wow. Well, a lot of those stories are often uh, often hidden, but uh, very important to uh, the development of uh, not only scuba diving, but uh, even the, the sports of uh, underwater photography and uh, everything that followed with that. Yeah, they did the underwater movies for uh, Tarzan back in the uh, in the late 30s. Uh, and they also did the underwater scenes for 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea wow. uh, back in the uh, late 50s with uh, Walt Disney. Right, and I, I remember reading the original Jules Verne copy of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. That was one of the uh, books I grew up on. That was a great book. <laughs> so uh, besides the Kelly, you've, uh, you've gone on to find uh, other shipwrecks as well. Yeah, I found the uh, shipwreck Lumberman. And the Lumberman was a three-masted schooner, sank April 6th, 1893, uh, off of Oak Creek Power Plant, halfway in between. Uh, Racine, Windpoint Lighthouse, and Milwaukee in 66 feet of water. So that was your, your second shipwreck, right? Yes, that was the second one that I found. And uh, what publicity did that bring? I uh, took the front page of the newspaper in Racine, Wisconsin. Uh, it was in Milwaukee's newspaper, Rockford's newspaper. Other diving chronicles around the United States also picked it up. Wow. So uh, you've gotten a lot of publicity over the years. <laughs> yeah, I've got a lot of publicity. It's uh, it's always good to have publicity, particularly when you own a scuba store and you want more people to come in and learn how to scuba dive. Right. I'm sure you get uh, more customers that way, right? Well, we try hard. <laughs> and that's what matters. We're good. Well, to find a shipwreck, what you have to do is research it. Uh, you'll have to go to the newspapers, you'll have to go to the archives and find out uh, where it sank in those days. And then once the newspapers tell you whereabouts it is, then you go out and you look for it. One of the most important keys is to know where it is not. Uh, so you're going to have to be able to position yourself out in the lake to be able to find out if it's definitely in this quadrant or that quadrant. And uh, back in those days, we didn't have the GPS and uh, we didn't have Lorand, uh, but some people had Lorand. It was very expensive back in those days. And uh, so most people did not have Lorand to uh, find where their positioning was. So you'd go out there and you'd scan with uh, sonars or magnetometers. Uh, they were very primitive in those days. And uh, it, it was good hard work. The Kate Kelly took me three summers to find and the lumberman took me one summer to find. Wow. It's amazing that you guys haven't found anything. Like, it seems pretty pretty difficult to you know, to put all that work in and all you know that primitive equipment as well. Yeah, well, things have changed. That's for sure. And uh, you said you didn't even have GPS. So how did you uh, do your lines with the magnetometer, all that? Uh, to, to find out exactly where your positioning was, we used shore sightings, and uh, by using the shore sightings, it would help to give you your location in the water. Wow. So definitely a lot harder back then. Yeah, and it wasn't wasn't quite as accurate either. Yeah. So so with shore sightings, does that mean that if there was no shore in sight, you couldn't find shipwrecks? Well, the, the, you can find the shipwrecks, but you don't want to search the same area. 
So you, you find a mild quadrant, and what you do is you search it back and forth both directions and see if it's there or not. If it's not there, then you move to another quadrant and another one. Otherwise, it's, it's like finding a needle in a haystack. Right. That sounds very tedious, yeah. It is. It's very tedious. Well, and with all the research process and everything that goes in behind that as well, I'm sure it, it definitely is no matter what, needle in the haystack. <laughs> it is. It is. It's, uh, you know, it was lost in history, and uh, now we bring it alive again. Yep. That's the wonder. So uh, what were people's initial reactions? Well, everybody wants to pick fruit from my tree. When I found the shipwreck, they want to go out and take artifacts too. And Well, you, you know, you just, if you're going to have a museum, you can't give all the artifacts away to everybody. And uh, so before we would uh, let anybody know that we found the shipwreck, most of the artifacts were already gone. Oh, wow. So uh, they were just picking out right from under you. Oh, absolutely. We'd, we'd go out at uh, crack of dawn and we'd go out there, dive on the shipwrecks and so forth. In the areas we were at, there wasn't a lot of shipwreck divers. There was a few fishermen out there, but that was about it. So we were able to maintain secrecy on that. And then uh, when we were ready to expose it, then we would contact the news media. All right. So uh, you can even expose it because uh, people would go right there and try to take it. Yeah, in, in those days they thought, well, it's underwater. We have the rights to, we're United States citizens and so forth. So they thought that they could go out and pick the fruit of uh, the shipwrecks and so forth. And well, we didn't like that very much, but there wasn't much we could do about it. Right, and uh, the, the legal battles I think is half of it because uh, I've heard tons of different stories of uh, the salvaging shipwrecks and stuff and uh, the, the court battles and uh, trying to win the rights over the ship. It's a, uh, it's a crazy world. It is. Everybody wants the free fruit, you know, and if they want it, they, they really need to go out and find their own shipwreck. Right. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Uh, Are you going to say something? Ian? Um, I have a question, but it's, it's a little off topic from the shipwrecks. But I think it's within uh, within range. So, what's your relationship with uh, James E. Lockwood? Did you know any of his relatives or anything? Uh, no, James. Um, he never got married. Never had any kids. He lived in Rockford, Illinois, and he was from Racine, Wisconsin. And he watched me for a lot of years, seeing what I was doing. And then later in life, he came by and and we talked, and uh, we instantly became friends. And uh, he showed me what he did in his life for uh, diving and so forth. And, and he quit diving in the early 60s. His best friend, Max Knowles, uh, was killed in a car accident near Las Vegas. And uh, it was a, a very sad time for him. So he just quit diving. And uh, Jim uh, dove on shipwrecks, did underwater movies for Tarzan and did underwater movies for 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and so forth. They were they were true pioneers of the diving sport. Right, and uh, there's our series right there, the pioneers of scuba diving. So, there you go. Absolutely, and right here in Rockford, Illinois. And, uh, it's amazing that it, that it happened here first, uh, but it, it took an inventor. It took a pioneer, an engineer, to put all the pieces of the puzzle together for underwater breathing apparatus. In those days, they, they called him, he becomes a human submarine with a 40 pound diving lung on his back. Wow. 
yeah, that is really quite amazing. It, it was like a whole different world back then. It was probably almost science fiction, I'm sure. Absolutely. 1938 was uh, probably uh, three years before World War II started. Yeah. So uh, technology would even only grow from there. A lot of technology, absolutely. Oh yeah, especially during the during the 1900s, uh, scuba diving and uh, tons of different fields went through tons of different technological changes. And uh, these are some of the men that uh, helped pioneer the scuba diving: Jimmy Lockwood, Cousteau, Amelia Gagnon. Let's not forget about Max G. Knowles. Exactly. Max Knowles in 1937 set the world record for the for the depth uh, divers could go. Prior to this, at 300 feet, all the divers were dying. Uh, he, with the help of Dr. Ed Grand, they came out with the Trimex gas. In 1937, he demonstrated he could dive 450 feet deep out in Lake Michigan uh, with his uh, self-contained underwater breathing apparatus system with the, with the long hose, and it was a Trimex gas. Wow. And, That's uh, crazy. They're still using Trimix today, right? Absolutely. Trimix uh, enables the divers to go deeper. In the rebreathers, they can stay down longer, and the, the air that they breathe is warm and moist. Wow. So uh, how similar is that to uh, something like nitrox? Uh, nitrox is elevated levels of oxygen in our uh, scuba tank. Uh, typically, we use 32%, 36%, 38% nitrox. Enables you to stay down longer and be a lot more refreshed when you get done with your dive. Yep, and uh, I just got off work wow. working with uh, Dan, and that's actually what I was using, and uh, it really does. It helps relieve you after a good work day. Gives you a lot more energy, and you'll sleep better that night, too. Oh, yeah. And, uh, there, there's nothing like it. It definitely helps. So uh, about Jimmy Lockwood, too, as uh, it's our subject. If you're, Wait, the, if you're wiggling, I you're wiggling the camera. You're, you're wiggling the camera with your arms. Watch. See what I say? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. What were you saying? Uh, I was going to say, I have a question regarding uh, the, the depth people could go. Uh, what was causing uh, everyone to die uh, trying to break the depth record? It's called oxygen toxicity. And the, the concentration of the amount of oxygen that you're breathing is is too high and you won't be able to, uh, your, your system won't be able to tolerate it. Wow. And uh, back then, did they uh, even know about some of that stuff? Uh, they didn't know what was causing it. It took a lot of years for them to discover what was causing it. Uh, and that was Dr. Ed Grand out of Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It actually was the one that invented the gas. Wow. He was a hyperbaric doctor. So do uh, you want to explain more what uh, hyperbaric is for some of our uh, viewers out there who might not know? Well, it, it start, started off with scuba diving. And then after scuba diving, the divers were getting sick. Uh, a lot of times they called it uh, uh, illness from diving or decompression sickness. So they built a chamber allowing them to simulate the depth again and pressurize to the same amount of pressure that they went through on a dive. And then they would give them special gases in there. Wow. And yeah, I know decompression sickness is definitely a serious thing. And the, the technology that's developed to today with uh, the hyperbaric chambers has definitely been a lifesaver compared to some of the 
primitive stuff that they were doing in the 30s and 40s. Yeah, the only difference between a decompression chamber and a hyperbaric chamber is the amount of money they charge for the services. <laughs> Which one's more expensive? The hyperbaric, of course. The hyperbaric. What are you going to do about your batteries? I don't know. I might end up dying. You uh, have a, a plug-in? No. Oh, don't. Okay. But we'll be fine. And uh, what about getting back into uh, Lockwood again and uh, some of the stuff that he did? Uh, what do you think people, if he was more publicized, uh, obviously he's been often, often overlooked, uh, what do you think he should most be known for? Well, Jim Lockwood would be most noted as the first one to develop self-contained underwater breathing apparatus. And his was a rebirther style. Jacques Cousteau was uh, open circuit. Jim's was closed circuit. Wow. So uh, did the two ever end up meeting? You know, I never asked. <laughs> I wonder uh, the, the conflict if uh, they did end up meeting. Uh, there probably would be a little conflict, but <laughs> Jim was a very humble man and, uh, being a very humble man, uh, he would just let Gusto have his way. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, no, I made it first. <laughs> One of those stories. So, uh, yeah, it's often overlooked again. I've, I know I've said that, but, uh, really Jim E. Lockwood was the one that was overlooked as the really the true inventor of of scuba diving because he was did it years before uh, Cousteau did it and uh, developed the aqua lung with uh, Amelia Gagnon. And uh, we touched on the aqua lung in uh, uh, the last episode. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, did you and uh, Lockwood go on uh, diving expeditions together or work on any projects together? No. Uh, Jim was approximately 35 years older than me. <laughs> so he, he was in later in life. It was uh, well into his 70s when I when I met him. Oh. And uh, just talking about uh, the age, uh, you have one of the world's oldest scuba divings here at the, the same facility, right? Yeah. Uh, we, we taught a fellow by the name of Bill. And uh, Bill... Uh, uh, was the oldest scuba diver in the world at age 98. We certified him. We taught him how to scuba dive at 98 and uh, uh, also certified him. So he was the oldest diver in uh, 98. And then a year later, he beat his own record by 99. And 99 years, he uh, scuba dived up at Pearl Lake in South Beloit, Wisconsin. Wow, that's going to be quite the wow. life. Uh, still, still scuba diving. And, uh, he's still diving. Going on 100. <laughs> he's, he's doing good. Uh, if anybody would like to join us, September 5th will be his 100-year birthday, and he's going down to Bonaire with us on a dive trip, and uh, he's going to demonstrate once again that he is the oldest diver again in the world at 100 years old scuba diving. <laughs> that sounds like wow. uh, sounds like quite the trip, and especially a birthday down there in the ABC Islands. Oh, boy, it's Wonderful diving. They have the, it's the shore diving capital of the world. Wow. So uh, you guys are going to do a lot of shore diving. You're going to do some boat diving as well? Yeah, we'll do some boat diving as well. Uh, it's Sorry for the interruption of the podcast, but we'll be right back after a short message 
from our sponsor. All right, welcome back, everybody. Sorry about the interruption of the podcast. And uh, ironically enough, actually, this podcast was filmed in two parts. And so uh, Ian is actually not here with us for the second part. And uh, he just got back from flying. But we are still here with Dan, and we're going to continue talking about the trip that they're doing down in Bonaire. Thanks. We're heading down to Bonaire at the end of August, first part of September, to celebrate Bill's 100-year birthday party and he's gonna make a legendary scuba dive. Bill's been diving for the last two years. He, he broke the record of being the oldest diver in 98 when we trained him how to dive, and that was down in Cozumel, Mexico. In this last summer, September 5th, uh, he broke the record again at 99 years old and still scuba diving. He's a pretty tough guy. He lived in Chicago, he was born in the uh, 5th of September in 1920. He went through the Roaring Twenties. He went through the 30s. Uh, he remembers a lot of the gangsters and all the stuff that was happening in Chicago. And his father was a tailor, so he got to meet some very interesting people being a custom tailor. Wow, that's really interesting. Quite the life story there. And uh, st still scuba diving. He's coming on 100, and he's going to break his own record once again. That's uh, it's amazing that he's still uh, scuba diving and out and uh, enjoying the field. So uh, what else are you doing while you're down there in Bonner? Uh, we'll be down there for a week, and we're going to do an average of four to five dives every day. Uh, we'll be doing two or three night dives. We'll be doing some shipwreck dives. Um, boy, it's, a, it's an awful lot of fun down there. It's some of the easiest diving in the world. We usually have about 150 feet of visibility, water temperature somewhere around 82, 83 degrees. It's just a great place to uh, hang out for a week and uh, do some diving. But when we're done diving, we like to go see the slave trade days, their donkeys. Uh, back in the old days, uh, they had slaves down there and they used the donkeys for moving the salt. And it was hard work. And these are miniature donkeys, they're, they're really small. They're uh, very curious, they're, they're very intelligent, and uh, they sure do appreciate it if you bring them an apple. They, they love apples, uh, potatoes, they like potatoes, and they like carrots. But the, oddly enough, the thing that they like the best, Oreos. They just love Oreos. And they, they make the funniest faces when you feed them an Oreo. You don't want to give them too many. It might make them a little hyper. But, uh, yeah, they sure do like the Oreos. Usually what we do is we smuggle them down in our suitcase because the Oreos are twice as expensive down on the islands down there. So uh, it's a great place to visit. It's very safe, wonderful food, Dutch colony. Uh, it's just a wonderful place. We've been going there since 1984, almost every year. So we got you know a lot of the native people that live down there and stuff. So if you want to join us, we've got about six spots left. And... Uh, and our trip is all sold out. Just call us at Loves Park Scuba, and uh, we can make all the arrangements for you. Well, and that really sounds like the trip of the lifetime, too. Uh, down there in the beautiful islands, in uh, the ABC Islands, Bonaire, uh, tropical in itself. Beautiful visibility, like you said, I'm sure. And are you diving some uh, shipwrecks as well? Oh, yeah, absolutely. They've got some great shipwrecks down there, starting in about 30 feet of, of feet deep and uh, 
visibility is usually 100 to 150 feet. There's a lot of giant tarpon that live on that shipwreck. Uh, there's octopus. Uh, there's some parrotfish. Uh, there's a lot of, a lot of fun things to see. And uh, you can shore dive that or you can go over and go out by boat. Wow, that's really quite amazing. So uh, you're going down to uh, Bonaire, and uh, I don't remember if we talked about it, but uh, you're also going down to uh, Lake Superior as well, right? Yeah, we're going to Lake Superior uh, this July, and uh, we're going to dive some shipwrecks up in Munising. There's four wonderful wrecks up there. Uh, there's an intact schooner there. It starts at 10 feet of water, goes down to 35 feet, great visibility, warm water, and uh, there's three other shipwrecks we'll be diving and we'll be uh, teaching people how to shipwreck dive, and you can get certified as a shipwreck diver down there. Yep, and that's what I'll be doing as well. I'm going to get my shipwreck certification as I'm working up the ladder with all the scuba diving certifications. And uh, that's another good trip, too. I think uh, you guys, if you're out in the area, you, should, you guys should definitely go on it. And uh, Loves Park is probably one of the best places you can do it through as well. Yeah, stop down, and we'll show you the ropes. We'll show you the store. And uh, we've also got an in-ground pool right here at the scuba shop. And it's 11 feet deep. We teach a lot of people how to scuba dive in there. Water's warm. We usually keep it about 83. Yep, they have, uh, they have a pool right here in the shop. And uh, it's perfect for uh, beginning in the scuba dive and all that. And uh, they usually uh, dive out of Pearl Lake as well. But uh, Pearl Lake is not open yet. But uh, once it is open, you guys will be able to go down there and... Um, scuba dive in Pearl Lake as well. Yeah, Pearl Lake, it's uh, quite a place. Uh, we're very fortunate to have them here in the Midwest. And uh, they uh, have a wonderful crowd out there, a beautiful beach, it's safe. Um, there's a twin engine Cessna on the bottom. There's a fishing tub from Lake Michigan. There's a Coast Guard boat down there. Uh, school bus, three or four cabin cruisers, and, and lots of fish to mingle with. And uh, they're really friendly. So far, that none of them have ever bit me. <laughs> so um, all those different things on the bottom, are they put there? Or were they actually, or did they actually think? Yeah, uh, the owner, he had a lot of foresight on uh, how to mature the diving groups around here and how to create an underwater park for divers to go. Kind of gets you ready for the rest of the world shipwreck diving out in Lake Michigan, Lake Superior, down on the islands and stuff. You see you see these things are just like shipwrecks. And the school bus, you can actually go through it. Right, and I think I've seen some pictures on your website of people actually going through that. And I do remember uh, one of my friends said uh, he was diving Pro Lake. I'm not sure if he did it through you guys or not, but uh, he actually got tangled or something on the school bus. And uh, they had to get his hose off and everything, but uh, he ended up being all right. The uh, diving at Pearl Lake uh, actually started in the uh, late 60s, so they, they had quite a while at it, and they've always kept the lake really clean, and they've got a wonderful beach over there, uh, and it's very safe with lots of lifeguards, making sure that everybody maintains their uh, distancing now, as well as safety in the water. So is the diving part of the lake different from the regular swimmers part of the lake? Oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's separated, and, uh, and it's all a controlled beach so that uh, nobody gets hurt. Nice, and I'm looking forward to going down, down there as well myself.
So uh, you're doing all these different trips. Uh, how about the, the service at the shop? How is everything at the shop been? Well, we're one of the oldest shops in the Midwest, and uh, we've been servicing scuba gear since 19, 1975. We started in another scuba shop fixing scuba gear for them, and then when I started my own shop in 1984, we continued on with great service on regulators and BCs and stuff. Uh, we can get your tanks recertified. We also sell tanks for people to use for uh, paintball guns, which is kind of unique, and we'll get adapters for them. They can adapt it and refill their tanks with the air. It's a uh, kind of diversified shop, and uh, we go into other fields as well. Wow, yeah, and it's a it's a beautiful shop down here. They have the Lockwood Museum, which we talked about earlier, and uh, the Lockwood Museum's a wonderful place, too. Uh, some of the history about Jim E. Lockwood and... Uh, some of the stuff that he did long before uh, Cousteau, at least a couple years before Cousteau did anything with the Aqualung with Amelia Gagnon. And then they also got uh, Kokomo's, the the bar, which is right next door, and they're all connected, and uh, it's a nice little area. We also have uh, two submarines down here, and extraordinary, they're both yellow, and one is a two-man sub, and the other is a one-man sub. They're kind of interesting to look at, and uh, so forth, and I, I had to promise the fire chief down here when I got my submarines that I wouldn't take them into Rock River. I made that promise, so he was good with that. That's pretty funny. <laughs> so is there anything else you'd like to mention about the about the scuba shop? Well, we run trips all over the world, and uh, we're going to Fiji in March, the first uh, Wednesday in, in March. We're going to Fiji, and we're going to feed the tiger sharks down there. And we call them gentle giants. They've been feeding them for quite a while on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And they're very people-friendly. They're uh, wonderful uh, tiger sharks. And uh, it, it's, it's really an experience that everybody should have once in their lifetime. And the island life there is phenomenal. And uh, you, you're going to be on an island like Gilligan's Island, first class. you got an air-conditioned cabin and a restaurant there and so forth. So you won't see a car for a whole week. It's an out island. No cars, no roads, no mopeds. But they do have Wi-Fi there, and they also have cell service. So if you got to get in touch with somebody, you can. Wow. And that sounds like a pretty awesome trip as well. Down there in Fiji, there's another beautiful island in the, in the Caribbean. So uh, what about the diving? What kind of diving will you be doing down there? Uh, they've got three shipwrecks down there we'll be diving. And uh, we'll do some night dives. Uh, some underwater photography dives. The, the corals down there are just magnificent, and uh, it's, it's like no other place in the world. I think it's the best place in the world to dive, and uh, so we go about every other year. We'll bring a group down. Still got a few spots left. I think there's six spots left on that trip, so if you want to give us a call, we'll hook you up. We can teach you how to scuba dive and take you down there to Fiji to feed the uh, tiger sharks. Wow. So a uh, very active shop. You're, uh, I'm sure you're always doing something, right? Whether it be with the museum, the bar, or the, the scuba shop. So uh, what, do you, what do you like to do in your free time besides all the different work stuff? Well, scuba diving is my favorite thing to do. So when I'm scuba diving, I'm the happiest. So I, I try to squeeze in as much scuba time as possible. Uh, today I've been in the water for two hours teaching scuba at a small class, and that was a lot of fun. I really enjoy it. Uh, I see the people's glow in their face when they, they start to understand what to do and how to do it. 
and uh, it's very rewarding. And it's a hobby you can do for the rest of your life. I've even seen people get out of a wheelchair and go scuba diving. So, you know, be, be good to your daughter because she might be in charge of your wheelchair and she can wheel you right down to the lake and push you in. We can go for a scuba dive. <laughs> there you go. Doesn't matter how uh, how old or young you are. Uh, Bill Lambert still scuba diving. He's 100 years old, and uh, I think what was what is what was one of the youngest people you've had uh, around like four years. Yeah, uh, little Jackson. Jackson had uh, autism. Couldn't talk. Couldn't chew food. He had to have all his food pureed. And uh, his mother has been a friend of mine for a long time, and she scuba dives. And I read in the internet that under hyperbaric autism, that with 40 to 60 dives in a hyperbaric chamber at 1.3 atmospheres, they're significantly better. So I showed that to their mom, and my swimming pool just happens to be 1.3 atmospheres deep, and we taught them how to scuba dive. It was, it was, it was a long journey, but after a year, he's, back, he's in mainstream kindergarten, and he's talking, and he's a nice young man, and he's ordering his own French fries at McDonald's and uh, he's chewing his food and so forth. And his teacher said that if she did see it in his folder that he had autism, she'd have never known. Wow. That's really quite amazing. It quite literally works miracles scuba diving. It's quite a wonderful thing, not only for uh, the physical, but mental and, uh, and social well-being. It, uh, it's a really good sport to get into, I believe. And, uh, it's definitely, uh, it's one of the more fun and adventurous sports as well. <laughs> and very safe. More people get hurt playing baseball per 100 people than scuba diving. So we think nothing of going out and playing a game of baseball. But a certain amount of people, they do get hurt. Scuba diving, it's, it's a, a good, safe sport. You have to get certified in it. So we train you for anything that could happen to you while you're underwater to make sure that you're safe. Wow. And it's awesome. I, I love that you shared that because uh, it does seem like uh, it does seem like it would be more dangerous than, uh, than playing baseball or something because of how much uh, what, what you need to know, how to regulate the systems, uh, how to take care of everything. But uh, the fact that uh, less people die scuba diving than than playing baseball shows that it is actually a lot safer than I think a lot of people think it is. Absolutely. And uh, I've been doing it for since 1973, so that's about 46 years now I've been scuba diving, and I have all 10 fingers <laughs> and 10 toes, too. No sharks bite him off or anything? No, no no sharks. I've been pushed around in a bar a couple of times. It, that was more scary than, than feeding the tiger sharks. Jeez. <laughs> you want to share that story? Uh, you know how it is when people have been drinking too much and so <laughs> forth. And they didn't mean to do it, but, well, it happens and so forth. So that's just the way life is. But uh, underwater, the uh, tiger sharks or the sharks, they don't use alcohol and they don't use drugs either. So they're, they're well-minded creatures. <laughs> At least you don't think so. <laughs> so uh, anything else about Jimmy Lockwood? And uh, some of the stuff with the Lockwood Museum as well, because uh, we wanted to interview you about Lockwood with uh, all the stuff that he did, because uh, we really wanted to break that myth and uh, use a professional that knows a lot about him. Uh, you run the Lockwood Museum, so uh, you're you're a good professional to go to about him. And uh, we just kind of wanted to break that myth that uh, Cousteau was the first person to uh, really 
developed the scuba diving. So uh, what else would you like to share about Lockwood? Well, Lockwood in... Uh, 1938, December 9, 1938, he demonstrated at the Boys Club his self-contained underwater breathing apparatus. And uh, he was quite an inventor, uh, but he wasn't a salesman. And uh, Max Knowles was a good salesman, and he did the deep water diving record in 1937, 420 feet deep. Previous to that, all the divers were dying at 300 feet, and with the help of Dr. Edgar End. And... Uh, they were friends, they, they, they did a lot, they revolutionized the, the diving, but he was sworn to secrecy because his self-contained underwater breathing apparatus was stealth, there's no bubbles. And with what he had, uh, they could secretly go out and put a mine on, on another ship or do some underwater things and not get caught because there's no bubbles. But he couldn't say anything to anybody because it was a military secret. And if he said anything to anybody, could have been treason, and, and treason in those days is an act of uh, death. They can, they can actually put you to death for treason. And uh, so he, he didn't say anything about it. And Well, later in life, he was in his 70s, and he came by, and he talked, and we talked, and we had a great time, and uh, we we're a lot of like people. And he's from Racine, and I discovered my shipwrecks in Racine. And uh, so we, we got along really well, and we had a lot of fun over the years, and uh, we sure miss him. He was, he was quite the entrepreneur. Wow. So that's amazing. You even got to, you got to meet Lockwood, and uh, you guys were best buddies? Well, he outlived all his friends, so I guess I w we would be the best buddies. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, he was right up there in age. And uh, so, but we shared a lot of camaraderie with the, the diving and the experiences and so forth. So. Quite a guy. He left me his company called Lockwood Scuba, and then I uh, uh, revitalized it. And now we have some of our own scuba gear yeah, with the here. Lockwood name on it. Yeah, and here you are today with a thriving business. You guys do trips around the world, and uh, I think you've definitely kept his legacy going with uh, everything that you do over here. So it's pretty amazing. Absolutely. You know, not, not a day goes by that we don't talk about Lockwood and, and what his accomplishments were and so forth with the people coming in the store. He, uh, he, he, was, he was a guy. Uh, he also took the first submarine that was built down the Mississippi River. Uh, he was one of the military officers in the Navy that went with to make sure that submarine arrived safely. And he had uh, one other guy, that was his sidearm, and uh, he was a tough guy and carried guns too. And uh, just to make sure that that submarine got down there. And the Pito was the name of it. And they took the Pito down the Mississippi River. And the, uh, then it went over to Australia to go to work during World War II. Wow, so that sub made it pretty far across the world. Yeah, it was, it was a long ways across, but they're, they're designed for that. And, uh, and, and, then, and it finished the war. It uh, never got torpedoed or blown up and so forth. And it was called the Pito, and I, I believe they made 10 of those in the Great Lakes for uh, the, the military, Navy, to uh, do what they do. Yep, and uh, a lot of that technology is continuing to develop and change over time. And now uh, we've got submarines that can go you know, uh, infinite amounts of time underwater and uh, super deep. And uh, all the technology and innovations that these guys came up with and did, uh, Lockwood, Cousteau, Amelia Gagnon, uh, really help pioneer what we what we're using today absolutely and, and they were all pioneers and they're all great people 
and they did the world a lot of good by introducing the self-contained underwater breathing apparatus and being able to uh, get people to use it and go understand the underwater creatures and how much fun they are and how safe it is. Um, it's, it's been a great, great way of life for me. So is Lockwood's system at all any similar to the rebreather and the fact that it doesn't use bubbles? Absolutely. It is, the, it is a rebreather. And uh, he designed it with a, with a pack to go on your back. And, uh, and the hose is coming in and the hose is coming out. Uh, it, it, was, it was quite, a, quite an accomplishment for those early years. And uh, now a lot of guys are running the rebreathers and they're going deep with them. They're going 300, 400 feet deep out in Lake Michigan diving shipwrecks with the rebreathers. And, uh, and they're successful with them. Most of them are successful, I guess I should say. Wow. And so uh, what's the difference between a, a, between a rebreather and a, a regular system? You want to share that with the, the, with the audience? Sure. A uh, rebreather is a closed circuit. That means you rebreathe your own gas, and then they take the uh, carbon dioxide out. They scrub it, scrub it out with a uh, neutralizer, and then they add just a wee bit of oxygen, a wee bit of oxygen on there. So your air is actually warm and moist and you can stay down longer with a smaller amount of air. The uh, open circuit is the one that hits all the bubbles and it comes out. So you take a breath in, your body utilizes about 3% and then they expel the rest of it. And then you take a new breath and that air coming through is a little colder, it's dry. Uh, so with the Lockwood uh, rebreathers, the air was warm and moist. So it, it worked out rather well. Yeah, and uh, so what's the what's the safety in comparison to the to the regular one? Because I've heard that uh, some of them were only able to dive some specific wrecks with a, a rebreather and not the regular open circuit. The uh, rebreather opposed to the open circuit. Uh, the open circuit is a lot cheaper than what the rebreather is, and uh, you don't need as much training for it. But you know, once you are trained and so forth, and you, there's safety rules that you have to apply by, and you know, there's you have to change your oil in your car, and you have to change your your gases in the rebreather and so forth. So, there's a little more, but you know, that's all part of the educational process, right? And uh, it's like going through an algebra to pre-calc. It's uh, just getting adding more and more until uh, you're more familiar with the equipment. So, I guess. Continuing on the, the subject of the rebreather, I do uh, remember a specific diver who was only able to dive the, I think it was the Britannic with a, with a rebreather because you uh, you mentioned how it doesn't give off as many bubbles as the open circuit does. And so uh, they said that it was actually safer or something for the shipwreck when they were diving it. Yeah, when all the bubbles are going through the uh, shipwreck, it's knocking loose a lot of the uh, algae and, and the dust and the silt down there and messing up the visibility. So sometimes it's hard to find your way out of a shipwreck. Um, so it's uh, a lot safer sometimes with rebreathers. That's interesting. And that te technology was all developed by Lockwood, uh, even before uh, Cousteau and Emilia Gagnon. Yeah, he, he had the uh, self-contained underwater breathing apparatus before those guys. But it was, it was all secret military stuff, so it wasn't available in the civilian world. Right, so he was pretty much sworn to secret. And uh, if, if he wasn't, you think uh, he would have 
been more known than uh, Cousteau? Boy, it's hard telling, but I would say yes, you know, because his stuff was so much more superior than uh, the other guys. And and don't forget, you know, the civilians, they started learning how to scuba dive in the middle 50s. Most before that was all military type people. And uh, the, the civilians now, they're, they're, they're growing leaps and bounds. They're showing the world the underwater beauty. Yeah, and I know we said it, but again, the technology that these guys developed was really extraordinary for their time. You know, you take into the fact that this was the the 1930s, and uh, technology was not was definitely not as developed as it was today, and uh, cars weren't even uh, as come along as they are now. So uh, it's amazing that the technology that these people were able to develop all the way back then, even in the 1930s and 40s, and uh, able to breathe underwater, which before that, centuries before that, had a had not even existed in any form, let alone some uh, minor, maybe very simplistic, uh, drop the rock in and uh, hope you can hold your breath long enough. <laughs> well, back in the old days, the cars, you know, they called them jalopies for a reason. And uh, they would have to fix and repair them daily sometimes. And uh, it, was, it was certainly better, more reliable than a horse, but uh, it was a challenge to keep them going in those days. And same thing with the scoop gear. Right. And uh, technology has definitely come really far. So uh, you have any final comments? I know we're coming on our, our last five minutes here. So uh, do you have anything else you'd like to mention to, uh, to the podcast before uh, we're going to have to end it? Well, the Lockwood Pioneer Scuba Diving Museum is about the legacy of diving. It's about the old gear, we have the old two-hose regulators here. We have the uh, 60s when the two-stage regulators came out, and we have the first B some of the first BCs that are ever produced. And uh, then we also have a hard hat exhibit down here. And the hard hat exhibit, the oldest hard hat diver that we can find was practicing in 1844, which is 16 years before the Civil War, and uh, with the brass helmets and so forth. So. We've got a, a good selection of stuff down here to uh, keep your mind stimulated. And, of course, we have scuba lessons, too. We've got a month special right now, $250 for class and pool training. And that also includes your online training, all your gear, and uh, for learning how to dive in our swimming pool. I need you here for two three-hour sessions. Do some homework at home. We'll have some good times. Oh yeah, and uh, I've I've been taking my lessons here as well, and I've been working through the e-learning stuff and taking the dives. So it's definitely a, a wonderful place. I, I definitely recommend it. Uh, the diving's fun, and uh, for the price, uh, you take everything into account. It's uh, very reasonably priced. Everything is uh, in good working condition. Dan's a excellent instructor, and uh, everything here is a uh, pretty good. So if you guys are ever out in uh, the Rockford area and uh, the Loves Park area, I definitely recommend you stop by. All right, and uh, with that, we'll uh, head into our conclusion of the podcast. All right, we'll wrap this up, and then next week we'll have another episode on a historical subject. We'll continue our series on uh, famous explorers and pioneers throughout the different fields of archaeology, scuba diving, and uh, so on and so forth. And uh, I, I thank you guys for listening to this, and uh, I, I think it was a really interesting episode. And uh, I thank you, Dan, for uh, doing this interview with us. Thank you. I sure do appreciate it. Um, getting the word out by Lockwood has been uh, something that I've been doing 
for almost 20 years now. And uh, it's a lot of fun talking about them and reminiscing about our old days and all the fun that we had. So thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Yeah. And as usual, we'd like to give a shout out to Anchor, our podcasting service. That's been a miracle making all these episodes. And uh, we really couldn't have done it without it. And if you guys have ever wanted to make your own podcast, it's a great service to do that. And I highly recommend it. And then more importantly, I want to give a shout out to some of you guys as our listeners as we continue to embark on this podcast. And for those of you who have liked and been following our different social media platforms as we continue to grow. And uh, we thank you to all of those people who have been liking and following all that. And uh, with all that being said, thanks, guys, and have a nice week. This is your host, Jacob Dean, and uh, this is Dan Johnson. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you next week. All right. Carpe diem, guys.